2: Welcome to the Friday Show. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas, and this is the Word to Stand Them for Life, a program dedicated to taking your phone calls, answering your Bible questions, questions about stuff going on in your life, whatever is on your heart. All you have to do is provide the phone call. 210 340 9585, if you're outside the local San Antonio area, you can call toll-free at 877-630-KSLR, that's 630-5757. You can email questions to us by emailing questions at com, or you can use our free Calvary Chapel of San Antonio mobile app. And as always, if you are driving in your car, the safest way to call is to use the free KSLR mobile app. Just hit the call now banner at the top of the screen and you'll be connected directly to our studio producer. Hey, I know it's just been a few days, but we made it to the end of our first week back. I don't feel like I messed up. Too horribly. So, thank you for your patience. The phone's been quiet this week, and remember, you're more interesting than I am. We have a busy weekend. I'm sure you do as well. Tonight, I'm going to be teaching uh, out of Galatians chapter 4. I think it's verses 12 through 20. And then on Sunday, we are going to go back to our verse by verse, chapter by chapter study in the book of Acts. So, things are starting to feel like normal again uh, here at Calvary Chapel of San Antonio. Let me get to the questions that have been sent in while we await any phone calls. Our first one is from Joseph from our email inbox. He said, Pastor Ron, I thought that the Psalms were written by David and Solomon in their time however when i read psalm 106 it can only point to the exile of judah to babylon many years after david and solomon uh, am i correct about this who else wrote the psalms um you know joseph the psalms some of them do not have attribution uh, Psalm 106 has often been um, supposed to have been written by David. I personally agree with you that it couldn't have been. But the reason that it was supposed to have been written by David is because it's sort of a companion Psalm with 105, and Psalm 105, we know, uh, was written by David. We know that from First Chronicles chapter 16, uh, when um, the, the composition is attributed to David. Now, What's important to understand is that there were a lot of people that wrote the Psalms. There are as many as 10 different authors. David, in fact, is named as the author of only half of them. Uh, Of the 150 Psalms, uh, he's identified uh, as the author of 75 of them. Um, He is um, uh, attributed to many of these Psalms. Uh, Psalm 95, for example, is attributed to David in Hebrews chapter 4, although in the Psalms they won't say a psalm of David like some of them do, but that's really important. But we know there were 10 identified uh, authors of the Psalms, and we don't know much about some of them. We don't know who they are or when they were writing, but I agree with you, Joseph, that in the end it appears very clearly as though uh, this psalm was uh, written um, by somebody looking back. Psalm 105 is glorious. Psalm 106 is hideous. I mean, it's it's a look back at Israel's history and Israel's unfaithfulness, even in the face of God's faithfulness. So it is an important psalm, uh, but it sort of... Um, 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 Recants the, or not recants, but but voices the history of Israel and uh, all of the things that they did. And I think the emphasis then becomes the faithfulness of God. Um, Not only the faithfulness of God, but also. The the, the uh, goodness of God and the patience of God in judgment. So Joseph, we don't really know who wrote it, but I agree that it wasn't David uh, in Psalm 106. Uh, I guess if God thought we needed to know, uh, then he would, um, he would have uh, told us that it was David. So let's go to line one. We've got an anonymous caller from Smithville, Texas. Anonymous, you're on the air. Okay, I have a question, and then I have a follow-up question,
1: depending upon your answer. My question is, how many Sabbath days occurred from the time Jesus was buried to the time he was resurrected?
2: How many Sabbaths? Um, I I really don't know why you're asking the question. There was a special Sabbath. I think it's Luke's Gospel that says there was a special Sabbath that might have been Mark, but... Uh, I'm not looking at it right now, but there was a special Sabbath, which would have been uh, not a Sunday, or I mean, sorry, not a Saturday, but it would have been a special Sabbath before, and and some use that to attribute the three days. Uh, in the in the grave before he resurrected. But but Anonymous, that really isn't important because the three days and three nights that Jesus is uh, said to have been in the ground like Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days and three nights, so too will the Son of Man uh, be in the earth. In, in Jewish thought, in Jewish poetic thought especially, uh, any mention of a part of a day was the same as a day. So, if what you're trying to 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 demonstrate is that he couldn't have been in the ground three days and three nights, three 24-hour days, he wouldn't have had to be there for three 24-hour days in order to fulfill uh, the prophecies about him. So, obviously, we know he was killed on Friday. Uh, he spent Friday uh, part of Friday in the tomb. Uh, Saturday he was in the tomb, and he spent part of Sunday in the tomb before he was risen from the dead. So he came out of the tomb after three days, and that's the point of the context. What's your follow-up question? Uh,
1: okay, I'm, I'm wondering about some verses in Luke. Uh, let me read them real quickly, just a few. It says, Luke 23, verse 54, That day was the preparation, and the Sabbath drew near. Next verse fifty five says and the women observed the tomb and how the body was laid. Next verse fifty six. Then they returned and prepared spices. Spices prepared uh preparation involved work and Mark sixteen one confirms that the spices were bought after the Sabbath. Now Luke.
2: Fifty six says. Well, let me stop you for uh, a minute. What is your What is your point? Why are you asking this? Clearly, the preparation of Jesus's body was done after the Sabbath. Uh, the women had to go home, and they returned very early in the morning with the spices uh, that they prepared for the body. So, tell me what you're trying to get to, and okay, and uh, well, what what what's your point?
1: Well, I'm, my point is that I'm trying to understand Luke twenty three fifty six. It says. Then they returned and prepared spices. And the concluding sentence says, "And then they rested on the Sabbath according to the commandment." It looks, doesn't it look like there are two Sabbath days?
2: No, they went. They went home to prepare the uh, the spices, which they were going to take back the day after the Sabbath, once the Sabbath was over. So at sundown, remember the, the Jewish day starts at sundown, and so they went home. Uh, uh from from the cross uh the 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 scene of Jesus's death uh they went home they prepared the spices and they were going to take those spices back The next day, we also need to remember that, of course, Nicodemus brought 75 pounds worth of spices um, uh, that that Jesus' body was wrapped in. So they were simply going back to the tomb the day after the Sabbath. So there was only one Sabbath. And the mention of a special Sabbath is simply a day of preparation. It could have been a day where the calendar year uh, fell on um, 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 a, a Sabbath, and 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 because they couldn't work, there was a special Sabbath. Uh, but um, anonymous, it's 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 just a question that really doesn't have any value for you. One Sabbath, Jesus died on a Friday. He was buried uh, uh, Friday night, put in a tomb. Um, He was in that tomb all day Saturday, the Jewish Sabbath. Now, remember, again, sundown, what we would say sundown Friday night to sundown Saturday night. That's the Saturday in the Jewish calendar. And um, um, on Sunday, of course, early in the morning, he rose from the dead. And that's when the women went back and um, um, with the spices, they went back to find the body of Jesus. And, of course, the angel greeted them with, why are you looking for the living among the dead? Thank you. Appreciate the call. I know you called last week, and we were trying to figure out what you're trying to get to, what your point was. Uh, There was only one Sabbath. Jesus died on a Friday. The next day was a Saturday. The following day was the first day of the week, Sunday. And that was the day that Jesus raised from the dead. 340-9585 from Barbara from Bernie. We've got a question that was called into the studio. What happened to Nathaniel? Um, and, um, that was a child who, uh, would call the show asking questions. Um, uh, Barbara, I think you're probably talking about Nathan, not Nathaniel. Um, Nathan still, believe me, he asked plenty of questions, but he's growing up a little bit and, and, you know, he asks those questions in person. I see him all the time at church. He's doing really, really well and, uh, growing up and, uh, his little brother was in kindergarten this last year. So we get another whole, uh, bunch of questions that are coming uh, as well. So Nathan was his name, and he is still around and doing well. Thank you very much. He's still the one one person that I fear having questions from. You never know what's going to come out of his mouth. Thank you, Barbara. I appreciate your asking. Here's an anonymous question. Pastor Ron, I feel like I'm being judged by people at church. Aren't they supposed to love and accept me? It hurts when church people act this way. Anonymous, if you are being judged and you haven't done anything wrong, then don't worry about what anybody says. Now, if you're doing something wrong, those church people are doing you a favor. They're letting you know that you're taking steps in the wrong direction. They're trying to get you back on the right path. Um, you know, the idea that church people are supposed to love and accept you. We love you. I don't even know you. And you, if you're a Christian, I love you. But I can't accept a sinful lifestyle. And it's one of the things I think that we don't understand. We get this emotional concept of love that means, well, if they love me, they'll just put their arm around me and tell me everything is going to be okay, and they won't point out what I'm doing wrong, and they'll let me do what I want to do. Uh, church people, Christians, aren't supposed to do that. They're supposed to tell you if you're using foul language. I'm just going to use that as an example. But there could be a million other sins. You're using foul language. The people in church will say, hey, brother, sister, you're not supposed to do that. Christians can't talk like that. That's not judging you. That's just responding to your behavior. And especially if you are telling people the stuff that's going on in your life and they tell you that those things that you're doing or saying are wrong, they're doing that because they love you. And it shouldn't hurt you. It should encourage you because their purpose is to get you back to a place where you're close to Jesus. I want to make this really clear to everybody who's listening today. Um, Church is not a place where sinners are supposed to be comfortable. It's that simple. It should make you very uncomfortable to come to church. Uh, The Word of God being taught should convict you. The people who really care about you as part of the body of Christ, they need uh, to tell you the truth in love. And you see, it's when they tell you the truth that you have the opportunity to make a correction and then get back to the place where you're right with God. So, Anonymous, you're being a little too sensitive. Here's the best counsel I can give you. If you're doing things that are wrong, there's no excuse for it. You know it's wrong? Stop doing it. That's not me judging you, that's me loving you. And we want you to know that the body of Christ loves you. Let me let me take one little jag from this question because we often hear things like, you know, the people at church treat me worse than unbelievers do. No, they don't. And you know what? The people in church aren't perfect. They blow it as well, so when somebody if somebody actually does judge you, remember not your behavior if you're doing something that's wrong and they say it's wrong that's not judging that's just telling you this is what the Bible says you're not doing this, but if they're judging your heart, then give them grace, give them grace. One of the things that you can always tell with a question like this is that too many of us are our, our feelings our thoughts our emotions are all centered. Uh, around us rather than other people. And whenever you're you're focused on you, you know your heart is in the wrong place. The idea is be a, a ministering servant that God can use to minister to others. We don't come to church to get blessed, although that happens. We will be blessed, but we come instead to be a blessing to others. And the way we do that, Anonymous, is to minister to them at their place of need. And if that need is to be called out for something they're doing wrong, then we call them out. But if they're doing things that are wrong, things that are harmful, the only way we can demonstrate that we love them is by telling them the truth. you got to stop doing that because that displeases the Lord and it puts you in a position where you're in spiritual danger as well. So... Be less sensitive. Be a little bit more focused on your own behavior. And if somebody's judging you and it's not true, get over it. If somebody uh, is telling you that something you're doing is wrong and they're telling you the truth, then repent. It really is that simple. Here is a question from Bernie. Um, In heaven... Did Jesus return to being just God, or is he still a man too? Bernie, uh, Jesus, when he, uh, at his incarnation, he is the God-man forever and ever. Now, he didn't actually take on humanity until his incarnation, but that was always the plan of God. So, Jesus became a man on his incarnation, and when he uh, returned to heaven, he returned as the God-man, 100% man, and one hundred percent God, that's hard for some people to understand, uh, but Jesus was both. He had two natures uh, human nature and 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 the nature of God. Um, in his human nature, he was without sin, which qualified him to die for the sins of people like you and me, sinners. Um, but when he went back into heaven, he went back into heaven in his physical glorified, um, I would say mutilated, crucified body. So he will be a man forever. One of the things that I don't think we understand, Bernie, is the sacrifice, the depth of sacrifice that Jesus made when he became a human. You know, it'd be one thing if the Father said, well, Jesus, we're going to send you to to earth and you're going to be a human for 33 years. Then they're going to kill you. And then you can come back and shed the humanity. But Jesus will always, always um, have the limitations of humanity. Um, He's in a physical body, just like you and just like me. And, of course, he did that, that we might be able to relate to God. I had a question on the program um, yesterday or Wednesday, I'm not sure. Um, uh, about about this, this issue. Um, Jesus will always be the God-man, which means he is both. Um, the Father is spirit. The Holy Spirit, of course, is a spirit. But Jesus was a man, is continued to be a man uh, forever and ever and ever. And in heaven, Bernie, those scars that he bears will be memorials to all of us so we'll recognize finally just how wide and high and deep and long the love of Christ is. So um, he is a man who is still God uh, and uh, he did that for you and he did it for me. Thank you for the question, Bernie. Here's a question from Darlene. She wants to know, do I think Solomon is in heaven? Yeah, Darlene, I do. Um, the evidence of that is in the the book of Ecclesiastes. It was a book uh, written uh, by an old Solomon, a man who had the advantage of hindsight, and he looked back on a life that was lived uh, in self-indulgence, a life where he says in Ecclesiastes he denied himself nothing, and yet he, there was there was always something missing. Um, one of the themes of the song uh, or of Ecclesiastes rather is is everything apart from God is vanity the king james says or meaningless or emptiness no matter what he did to try to satisfy himself whether it was the pursuit of knowledge the pursuit of wealth the demonstration of wisdom the pursuit of sexual pleasure um the the the, the pursuit of of education or learning uh, all of those things at the end of Solomon's life he could look back on and say all of it apart from Christ Meant absolutely nothing, and the book of Saul or Ecclesiastes uh, is his his book of repentance. And so, yes, he is in heaven. He didn't live uh, a life. He started out great. Uh, I think of two people that started out great. One of them, uh, for sure, Solomon is going to be in heaven. The other is King Saul. He started out great. I don't think he's going to be in heaven. And, um, and uh, Solomon at least comes to the conclusion that, you know, all of that time was wasted pursuing everything apart from God. Any minute, any, any, any season I spent um, pursuing anything that didn't include God as my priority, all of that was meaningless. And uh, we know, Darlene, that um, his sin was repented of. And he came to his senses. Didn't live at all. He squandered a whole bunch of his life. Um, But the truth is, uh, he's going to be in heaven. Imagine we'll have some great story time with Solomon and David and some of the others. Here's a question from Bobby. Bobby says, I think the devil has stolen the rainbow and is using it to deceive. Should Christians take the rainbow back? Bobby, I'm only laughing, not laughing at you. I'm laughing with you. I I heard uh, somebody on the radio before we went on vacation, um, maybe two, three weeks ago, uh, and they were talking about this very issue. You know, we need to get the churches actively involved to take the rainbow back. Um, Nobody can take anything away from us that God has given to us. We don't have to worry about stuff like that. That's, that's sort of pettiness. So no, we shouldn't take the rainbow back. What we should do is tell people who are using and misusing the rainbow, we should tell them about Jesus. Remember, the gospel itself is the power of God unto salvation, and we should have no expectations at all, Bobby, of uh, unbelievers doing godly things with God's symbols, It really is that simple. The devil actually took the word of God and misused it to try to tempt Jesus. That's what unbelievers do. And the whole idea of a rainbow is just, you know, putting it in God's face. You know, you use the rainbow as a promise never to judge the world by a flood again. So we're going to take it back now and make it something evil. That's what the world has been doing a long time. We who are believers need not to get caught up in these silly arguments. I know what the rainbow represents, Bobby. You know what the rainbow represents. So it doesn't matter what other people say. Um, We should be offended when the rainbow is misused, but offended with the broken heart. Not to fight for the rainbow, but instead use our broken hearts to fight for the souls of those who are lost. You know, I don't know what you see, Bobby, when you see news stories. When we got up June 1st, everything was, was all rainbow, all pride, all the time. And uh, what I saw when I would see those things is I would see uh, people who are empty, people whose lives are filled with misery and pain, people who have no hope, and people whose only joy will come in this world. And since they really don't have joy, uh, my point is they're living futile lives. And so, no, we don't need to take the rainbow back. What we need to do is proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. I say this often on this program, but we need to remember that people like them are not the enemies of the gospel. They are the objects of the gospel. And we need to remember that and and I guess it helps me a little bit, Bobby. Maybe it'll help you. Uh, I try to remember when I see people blaspheming God, um, thumbing their nose in God's face, uh, I remember that Jesus loved them. For God so loved the world, all of it. He so loved the people, all of them, that he gave his one and only Son that whosoever believes would not perish but have everlasting life. And when I remembered that, then it helps me focus on the fact that these are men and women who are beloved by God. And I can imagine, Bobby, God's heart absolutely broken. I see Jesus in tears. You know, we see Jesus in his ministry here on earth weeping on several occasions wept at the tomb of Lazarus. He wept bitterly at the tomb of Lazarus. He wept when he looked out over Jerusalem and said, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, if you knew, if you only knew that I'd come to gather you as a mother hen gathers her chicks. He cried because of the condition of these people. Woman, where are your accusers? And then he said, Neither do I accuse you. But he told her to go and sin no more. And that's what we need to remember. I think of the man at the pool of Bethesda, where the next day Jesus went to get him and told him, now you stop sinning or something worse than before will happen to you. That had to break his heart. Judas's betrayal broke his heart. So we need to remember that and focus on that rather than getting in the fight or winning the argument. There's no virtue at all to that. Hey, we've got 30 minutes left in our week. 340-9585 or toll free 877-630-KSLR. This is the Word to Santa for Life. I'll be back in two minutes.
0: Welcome back to the Word to Stand On for Life. We're taking your calls at 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. Now, here's Pastor Ron Arbaugh.
2: Welcome back to the second half of our program, 340-9585 for your live calls and questions. We have 30 minutes left in our week. Let me go to line one. We've got Cindy holding. Cindy from San Antonio, thank you for calling. You're on the air. Hi, Pastor
3: Ron. Hi, Cindy. I I actually had this question, but it's in three different parts, but I wanted to wait until you got back from vacation because you were having so much fun being in California before you got there. I just didn't want to, it was just too fun listening to you. (laughs) (laughs) So, so anyways, it has to do with Ezra when we studied the last chapter and the, uh, Jews who were in Babylon and then they married the people they weren't, the women or men that they weren't, uh, supposed to marry. And then when God said that you have to leave these, um, leave these spouses and, and, you know, go, go back to Jerusalem and I guess some of them got their wives, you know, to, to convert. But then the ones that didn't and the ones that decided not to leave and stayed in Babylon I wondered what happened to them after they died. That's my first one. Then the next two are like there's a Christian who 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 is a believer and married their spouse and their spouse had accepted Jesus you know before before they got married, but then never really got real into it just kind of is definitely saved definitely knows that that's the only way, but just kind of is is um happy to be in the smoking section, so to speak. (laughs) Then the next one is I had a friend about 40 years ago who was a Christian, and she knowingly married a non-believer. We all told her, don't do this, don't do this. She did it anyways. Then about three years later... She told me she was getting a divorce because she got tired of her husband's drinking. Now, as far as I know, there wasn't abuse and there wasn't cheating as far as I know. She just simply got tired of the fact he was drinking, so she divorced him. I don't know what happened after that. I don't know if she got remarried or anything because, you know, I kind of lost contact with her. But those are my three uh, situations I wondered if you would comment on. And I'm always so glad when you and Mama Polly get back from California. <laughs> Listen
2: on the radio. Bye. Thank, thank you, Cindy. Uh, let me take take the the last question first because I've got another I got another one coming up that is similar to it. But the the, the single thing that we we see in counseling that that is um, that results in the most pain is unequally oaked relationships. Uh, somebody marries somebody because well I love him I can't do without him or I love her I can't do without her but it's not a Christian. Um, usually all the counsel in the world, all of the concern that we express doesn't matter to that person. I'm going to do what I want to do, and who knows, maybe I'll convert him or I'll convert her. And then uh, a year or two or three, in this case, Cindy, uh, goes by. And uh, when when that happens, um, well, now I'm tired of it. I want to get rid of him. You know, you're stuck. You're really stuck. Short of abuse, and I'm talking about physical abuse, short of abuse, this is what God told you would happen when you married an unbeliever. And, um, uh, you know, most of the time, and this is the thing that I think is critical, Cindy, most of the time, the same person that wouldn't listen to you or to me when we tell them don't marry an unbeliever, they won't listen to you as a believer when you tell them don't divorce the unbeliever. Because the reality is they've already demonstrated they don't really care what God says. They're going to do what they want to do, and there are going to be consequences to those bad choices as well. So that's the reality. The reality is people do what they want to do, and then they think there shouldn't be any consequences. There are always consequences. I mean, if I could plead with people, Do not get into a relationship with an unbelieving person. Why would you want to marry somebody who's not going to be in heaven with you? I understand loneliness. I understand wanting to to have an intimate physical relationship with somebody, but not at the cost of the kind of pain that results when people marry outside of the faith. It is simply um, a fact of life. Um... Sometimes, like with me and Paula, now, Paula and I, we didn't get married unequally yoked. We were both pretty much committed to sin, but she got saved, and the 13 years she was saved before I got saved, I made her life a living hell. Um, Fortunately, she hung in there with me. But that's not the case. Most of the time, the people will just leave uh, and do what they want to do. And then they'll try to figure out, well, why aren't things going better? You know, I thought I would be happy, but we're not. And the reason we're not is because we are um, living disobedient lives. And and the the, the Lord will never let us um, have a contented or satisfied life. Uh, when we're being disobedient. So that's the answer to that question. The first one you asked was about in Babylon when they married. Um, uh, it's not just in Babylon where they married unbelievers, Cindy. When they went back, when the remnant went back to Jerusalem, um, they married some of the unbelieving women around them as well. Um, remember, only 50,000 went and most of the women were already uh, married when they went back. So there was a bunch of men uh, who who really there wasn't much of a pool of Jewish women to, to draw from. So they went out and took matters into their own hands. And Ezra, Nehemiah did the same thing, by the way, in the same time frame. He just told them, you can't do that. Those women are dragging you away from the Lord and they're dragging you into um, idol worship. Uh, And they were losing their faith. We know that's what happened to Solomon, for example. He married so many foreign women. uh, He allowed them the worship of their gods. And he got caught up in some of that that worship uh, as well. So uh, Ezra was simply saying, uh, we're going to fix this. We need to repent. And remember, repentance always requires a solution. I was doing this. Now I want to obey God. I'm going to do this instead. And he said, "Get rid of those women." Now, when I taught that uh, before I went on vacation, uh, I said, "No doubt there were some of those um, women who converted. They loved their husbands, and their husbands look, you either convert or 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 uh, to Judaism, uh, or or you're gonna have to be you, you and the kids are gonna have to be gone.'" Uh, and and they would they would become Jews. Um, it's it's not like Christians. You know, you're born again, and the spirit of God lives in you. It wasn't like that for them. So what they did was um very simply um they dissolved the marriages they give the women a certificate of divorce that means they would be free and, and and no longer bound in the world that they were going into but but Ezra was demanding that a, a change of life be made so I hope that uh, amounts I forgot the second Oh yeah, that's the question. I have some another one. What happens with people that, that marry somebody who says they're a Christian and then they're just content to barely make it into heaven? And when Cindy's talking about the smoking section, First Corinthians 3 talks about we'll get there, um, the the judgment seat of Christ, but as though we were um, uh, having been on fire. In other words, we barely made it, um, but, but we lose the rewards. You know one of the things that that we really need to deal with is whether or not somebody is really saved you're not saved because you say you are you're saved because the Spirit of God uh storms your heart uh forgives you of your sin, and then you walk with jesus and if you meet Jesus, if you really and truly meet Jesus, then you've got to change you've got to be different, and that's how important this is so um The man or the woman who says, uh, I'm a Christian. I got baptized. I answered an altar call, whatever it is. Uh, I accepted Jesus in my heart, but their life has never changed. That's a profession of faith. that isn't genuine. So that's what we've got to understand. Not everybody who says they're a Christian, Cindy, really is. And that's why I tell people, I'm doing a wedding on Saturday. Um, And and I tell people all the time, um, when you meet somebody, before you say, I do, before you get involved, watch their lives to make sure that you can see fruit from their profession of faith in Jesus Christ. It's never enough just to say somebody is a Christian. Yeah, he's a Christian. Well, you know, he doesn't go to church much. He doesn't read the Bible. And then later it gets worse and worse and worse. Yeah. People aren't believers just because they say they are. They are believers because they've met the, the living God and then meeting him will change you. It doesn't mean we'll be perfect, but it does mean that we'll want to be. And when we sin, it will really bother us. We'll hate our sin. One of the things that I love about David, King David, is that um, you know he he was called a man after God's own heart. He did horrible things. But David hated his sin. Now, David hated everybody's sin, but he hated his own sin even more. And he was, I think, the greatest repenter in the history of the world. When he was um, caught in sin, he didn't try to deny it. He didn't try to make excuses for it. He accepted responsibility for it, and his heart broke. And he repented. Well, we too need to have broken hearts over our own sin. So Cindy, that's the uh, the example there, and I have another question that'll be similar to that in just a moment. Here's a question from our mobile app. This one is anonymous. Um, he or she says, "I have a friend at college. She's a Jehovah's Witness. How can I answer him? How can I witness to him? I really don't know how to approach him on." Uh, his belief, and how I can point him in the direction of a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Anonymous, the problem with Jehovah's Witnesses is that they don't believe Jesus Christ is God. They don't believe it. That means they cannot be saved. It's why Jehovah's Witnesses are a cult. Um, they they use the same names. Uh, many of them are really nice people. But by and large, the best way to witness to a Jehovah's Witness is simply to live your life filled with joy. Talk about the security that you have in your salvation, the, the the absolute certainty that you're going to be in heaven. Live a life that's grateful. Oh, God has done so much for me. Share the stories about what God has done in your life. Because I promise you, that's not true for the Jehovah's Witness because they don't know God. Now they can knock on doors. They can work real hard. And, and so many Jehovah's Witnesses are miserable because they've worked so hard, but they don't have any guarantee of eternal security at all. They, they have no way of knowing. And um, the reason is because they've got the wrong Jesus. Their Jesus is uh, Michael the Archangel uh, in another form. Um, their Jesus can't save sinners. Um, uh, he, he's just not God, the creator of all of the universe. Everything that is was created by him. And um, they're pretty stuck and brainwashed in their false doctrine. Uh, but the reality is what what you can demonstrate, your joy, your gratitude to God, they can't replicate in their own lives. And, and the best thing you can do is let them know, look, what you believe is completely wrong. It isn't true. So I'm going to challenge you to watch my life, ask me any questions you want, but watch my life and you're going to see how different it is from yours because I truly love Jesus. And they can't say that. They're working hard for him, but they can't say they love him. Ask your friend, are you going to heaven? He can't say yes. You can ask your friend, you know, Jehovah's Witness, believe only 144,000 were going to go to to heaven. And now that there's more than 144,000 people that have been Jehovah's Witnesses that lived and died, what's going to happen to you? Where are you going to go? They'll tell you if they're honest. We don't know. You can tell them you can know. But you've got to meet the Jesus Christ of the Bible who is the Son of God and God the Son. So don't, Pound them, don't don't get into debates with them. Just let them see your joy. And there's such power in personal testimony. Let them know what God has been doing in your life. And when that happens, um they're going to notice the Holy Spirit is going to knock on the door of their heart and and they're going to notice that you've got something that they don't have. But many of them are dug in. I mean, really, really dug in, and there's not a lot that you can do to convince them because they don't want to hear. 340-9585 for your live calls and questions. Here is a question from Jesse uh, from our email inbox. Pastor Ron, I have a question uh, about one of the pastor's teachings um, who taught for you while you were gone. I don't remember his name, but he taught from Proverbs chapter 4. That would be Pastor Chris. He's one of our youth pastors. Um, that's my insert. The question continues. He said that unless you're pursuing personal holiness, that you are out of walking with the Lord. He went on to say that we're able to be loyal to Christ. if I don't know. That's awkward. He went on to say that we are, are to be loyal to Christ if we want to be used by Him. He said several times that if we want to be used by God, then we must be completely following Him. I thought we were saved by grace and not by works. Um, Jesse, we are saved by grace and not by works, but works automatically flow. Fruit of the Spirit automatically flows from the heart of a saved person. Now, uh, I can tell you exactly what Chris was saying. He's saying that... Um, uh, what the Bible says, without holiness, no one will see the God or see the Lord. So without pursuing holiness, if you're really saved, if you're really a believer, then you're going to want to live a holy life. And if you're not, if you don't desire living a holy life, then what makes you think you're a Christian? Is it just because of the words you said? Is it because you answered an altar call? I, I said this earlier, has your life really changed? If not, then to lay claim to be a Christian is to hold on to a hope, a false hope. It's like a life insurance policy that will never be cashed. And if we want to be used by the Lord, we have to have the power of the Holy Spirit. And Acts 5.32 says the trigger of the power of the Holy Spirit is obedience. So that doesn't negate being saved by grace. But too many people have an idea that, hey, I'm saved by grace, unmerited favor, so I can do what I want. No, because you're saved by grace, you'll do what Jesus wants you to do, because that will be the desire of your heart. In Titus chapter 2, verses 11 and 12, Jesse, uh, Paul writes that, um, he says this, The grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. It, the grace of God, teaches us, and this is dealing with real believers, it teaches us to say no to all ungodliness and to live self-controlled, upright lives in this present age. So that's what grace does. Grace saves us, not because of anything we've done. It's just because God gave us this unmerited favor. But it also, grace teaches us to walk in a way that is worthy of the name Christ. And the, the the in the in the West, especially in our country, Jesse, we've got this idea that all I have to do is say the words and say forgive me of my sins and and go to church occasionally, and I can do whatever I want. That's the antithesis of what it means to be saved. And what Chris's point was, Pastor Chris's point was, as he was teaching from Proverbs 4, is simply this. If you're not pursuing holiness, you're only kidding yourself that you're saved. And of course, we want salvations to be genuine. You know, Jesse, I say this to my church all the time, and it makes them uncomfortable. But, uh, um, you know, Jesus told a story about a, a broad road and a narrow road. He said the narrow road is if few find it and I believe looking at the at, at so-called Christian lives professing Christians lives um, with all my heart I believe that only about half of the people sitting in church every week are born again Christians and I challenge our church here all the time in that way all the time because I want them to examine themselves Paul says that we're to examine ourselves daily to see whether or not we are in the faith there's a lot of people walking around saying, I'm saved, I'm saved, I'm saved. But their lives are a shipwreck. And the reason that, that, that they do whatever they want to do and their, their lives don't look anything like that of a Christian, there's no power in their lives. It's because they haven't really been converted. They haven't really been born again. So let me end this, Jesse, by saying it's never enough to know about Jesus. Jesus. You have to know him in a personal relationship and be known by him. And the only way Jesus can fellowship with you, the Apostle John says, "Uh, Jesus is the light, and if we want to walk with him, we have to walk in the light. And so if you're doing bad things, then he isn't with you. It's that simple. And if you're doing bad things and you don't feel conviction of the heart, if you don't just hate the fact that you're sinning, then it's one of those times when you really have to examine your heart to see whether or not you're really a Christian. Remember, we're not a Christian because we say we are. We're a Christian because Jesus Christ has invaded our heart and we're born again. You know, um, the old comparison intended to be funny was, you know, you may go to McDonald's, but that doesn't make you a hamburger. You may go to church, but that doesn't make you a Christian. What makes you a Christian is being born again by the blood of Jesus Christ, dying to self and living for Christ. My final thought on this, Jesse, is: is uh, read Romans chapters four, five, six, and seven. Um, you know the idea Paul was being accused by some Jews of teaching a gospel of grace. It said, "Well, oh well, you know, since God saved me, uh, I can do whatever I want." What? What shall we say then? Shall we keep on sinning? God forbid. The King James says. The NIV says, "By by no means." That really means God forbids. We can't live our lives. The, the sign that we're born again is that we're living our life for him and toward him. And that's what identifies us as a believer. And when we do that, Jesse, we will have the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Good question. Well, I talked too much. we got less than four minutes left. I've got time for one more question. Pamela says, how can I be sure my husband is the one man God had for me? I worry that I may have married the wrong man. Pamela, this is a really easy one to settle. Uh, if you are a Christian and you are married to a man right now, he is the man, the only man God has for you. You know, don't worry about your soulmate or don't worry about, did I choose wrong? Right now, the situation is such that you and him are one flesh and he is the one true man God has for you. And pursuing anything else, listening to this kind of soulmate nonsense or listening to the devil say, well, you know, you picked the wrong guy. There's somebody else out there. That is just an enemy who's trying to destroy you. Um, Honor God where you are. fall in love with your husband more every single day and rightly represent Christ in your home and the joy of the Lord will be yours. But you got to take these thoughts captive and make them obedient. Uh, we honor God where we are and that's really, really important. Um, and that's why the Holy spirit, the power of the Holy spirit will come upon you. And, um, the, the, the thing you're afraid you are missing out on. Uh, you'll find that fullness of joy in that marriage. I mentioned earlier, I'm doing a wedding tomorrow. And, and you know, one of the things that we try to tell people in pre counseling is that this is a commitment that you're making. You're committing to God that this man or this woman that you brought into my life is going to be the one, the only one that I have affection for. He's the only one or she's the only one that I have eyes for. This is the one that I'm giving my heart to. And that's the only way a husband and wife can live in a way that is pleasing to the Lord. So Pamela, stop worrying that you married the wrong guy and focus on the fact that now this man is your job. Love him so much. Love him the way Christ loves him. And at the end of every day, you can go to bed and you can say, Jesus, I did my best. And that's when things will really, really change. Good question, Pamela. Thank you very, very much. Hey, tonight I'm going to be teaching out of Galatians chapter 4. Um, we're going to get going through Galatians um, pretty quickly now that I'm back from vacation. Um, about freedom and um, Liberty and all these really good things about staying on the path that God set before us. Uh, this is this is a, an epistle where you really hear uh, the heart of the Apostle Paul. And on Sunday, um, our second Sunday in the month, uh, we're back to our regular chapter-by-chapter and verse-by-verse study uh, in the book of Acts. We're currently uh, getting ready to finish this Sunday, Acts chapter 13. Hey, appreciate you tuning in today. I'll be back next week and hopefully I'll be a little bit better back in the swing of things. Um, It's a pleasure to be here with you. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas. This is the word to stand up for life. May the Lord bless you and keep you. Find somebody at church that you can really, really bless. God bless you. See you next week. Lord willing on AM 630, the word. See you then.